Hey, Mabel. Hey, Tori. This is Hey Playwright, a podcast about playwriting and life. Mabel. It is September. <laughs> it is. And September brings many great things, such as kids are back in school. That's weird. Yeah, it, it, it is. It feel like it, right? It feels like they're still on vacation. I feel like my kids are, they're doing a distance learning thing because we're in California. In-person schools are shut down. Everybody has to be learning remotely in our neck of the woods. And I feel like my kids are sneaking video gameplay when they're not supposed to be oh mine isn't even sneaking it she's just oh, really very open about okay, okay. Mm -hmm. yeah i i think it is challenging to control that and put the limits on even though they are necessary it, it it's just a challenging time i had to take sadie to her orthodontist this morning uh, the woman behind the desk has a daughter who's 14, and we were talking about how kids are developing social anxiety now because everything is being done on the internet or on their phones. They're not having to interact with human beings <laughs> like they used to. Is that what's happening? Like when they have to, or what? where is the anxiety coming from? I think the anxiety is coming from they've been in their homes sequestered for so long that they are hesitant to want to go back out and gather. Okay, so that that's me. That is how I operate, 100% get it, and um, worry about that for my children, because I can tell you right now that I don't really have much, especially, well, obviously now, I don't even, I don't have a need to leave unless I make a Costco run or whatever, and even that is like, oh, we've had these conversations where I'm like, I gotta go to Costco today, Right. And then like a week later, Tori never went to Costco. And then another week later, Tori, there's no food in my house. I need to go to Costco. And yeah, because I have anxiety about getting in my car and leaving because I'm so used to staying at home. I don't know if my kids, they might be the same way. They go do their sports. So, but what I worry about is they're not getting up, sitting in the same spot. Right. That just can't be good. Well, I know that, that my kid, her PE teacher, has them do the exercises. Their cameras have to be on in Zoom. So I like that because she is getting some physical activity. You know, the COVID-19 poundage, and, and when I say 19, I mean literally it should be 19 pounds. It should be COVID-19 pounds. <laughs> I did manage to lose a little bit of weight, but I think it's from the move and going up and down stairs and... I agree with you. It, it has created an even more sedentary lifestyle change. The weight is on the parents to get the kids out doing stuff. And it is hard. I'm not good at that because I myself am very sedentary. But now I have this, this guilt of, oh, they're on the video games. We need to move. And one of my kids' friends moms is really good about that and she's just like oh yeah we're, we gotta we gotta get out and they go for their morning walk like i morning walks what no <laughs> i'm like morning walk to the kitchen to get my coffee i know but, but i know no, I don't, 
do that and I feel really bad about it. Sometimes we play catch in the house and like in the house. Off. You don't go in your backyard <laughs> and play catch. I did I did buy one of those mini trampolines, you know, those like like the, the fitness trampolines, which by the way is called a rebounder. Did you know that? Did not know that. I used to have one of those, okay. but I thought they went out in in the 80s. Like, yeah, yeah. no, they're all they're all the rage, man. Oh. Um, because this mom, you know, who's like awesome, she was telling me that she has one, and I was like, I'm gonna buy one. Like that day that she told me about it, I was like, I'm gonna buy one. And guess where it is? In the garage. No, oh. actually, no. It's in the kids' room. They took it. Oh. They have taken it over. So at least I guess they they do move on it. But have I? Well, the whole idea was for me because my legs started hurting. I wasn't standing up enough that my legs were hurting at night. Um, and I was like, I'll get the trampoline so I can move more. And now it's in their room. I'm never ever gonna see that thing ever again. Oh my gosh, you're making me think of. Up until not that long ago, I even had a thigh master. Do you remember the thigh master? Suzanne? Yeah, yeah. Suzanne, Suzanne Summers. Summers. Oh my gosh. You know what though? That thing really did work your thighs. <laughs> <laughs> I think back to those videos of the Jane Fonda workout. My mom had it and we would watch it. I can even remember specific things she said in her video. Hold on, hold on. Did she do the keep smiling? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Keep smiling. Keep smiling. The leg warmers. Oh, yeah. Uh -huh. The spandex. Oh, yes. It was a glory. Stop. <laughs> but you know what? It paid off because look at her today. I know. She looks amazing. She's so beautiful. She's just so perfect. Okay, Tori. As much as I would love to continue reminiscing with you about exercise in the 80s, I think some people actually came here expecting us to talk about theater and playwriting. This weekend is the Latinx New Play Festival at the San Diego Repertory Theater. And it is special for many reasons, but to talk more about it, we have our guest, Dr. Maria Patrice Amen, who is a director, producer in residence at the San Diego Rep. She's also a professor. <gasps> Tell us about your involvement with the festival? Oh, sure thing. So I am the executive producer of the festival and we founded it four years ago. Um, so I've been with it and championing it from the beginning. It started very small, a very intimate uh, festival in its first year, um, but we followed the same structure throughout. So each year we put out a call for submissions, a nationwide call for submissions from Latinx identifying playwrights. And we ask them to submit a new work that is full length, eight performers or less, and non-musicals. So plays with music are okay, but a full musical requires a lot of resources that uh, we don't have at this festival. Each year we collect on average 90 submissions, we have a team of community readers who will read and evaluate the plays and then share their evaluations with us. We then call that list down to um, like our top 12, top 10 finalists, and then call it even deeper down to just four. So it is a very rigorous process. Of, we go through three rounds of readings. Each script re gets read at least 
four times. And the ones that make it all the way down are being read like almost 12 times. So it's a lot of eyes on the scripts to ensure that we are getting some really cool pieces selected for the festival. How did the festival come about? So the festival was an idea that had been gestating for a while. So the Amigos del Rep, it's like sort of an ancillary organization within San Diego Rep. Um, Amigos del Rep is a community council of Latinx identifying artists. And for a while, they had been looking for an opportunity to help expand the pipeline. So San Diego Rep is committed to telling Latinx stories. We do on average one or two Latinx-centered stories in our season every year. And it's been that way for the last 30-something years. Um, I think they have a history of almost, almost like 50 Latinx plays. One of the issues within culturally specific work is the pipeline. How do we get scripts from the brain of our playwrights onto the stage. It is a long and sort of opaque process in getting that development. Part of it is finding those playwrights, connecting the playwrights with the theater institutions. Part of it is finding plays that are ready to be produced. And part of it is going through that working process of getting a play ready to be produced. Um, each play is its own unique thing and they all kind of move through that process at their own speed. Some plays uh, take years of development. Some plays hit the stage really quickly after the playwright has finished writing. But within culturally specific work, that pathway is more narrow. There are less resources devoted to it. And so our goal with the festival is to help expand out that pipeline, expand it out so that we have more work on our stages but also on national stages. So our festival, we invite uh, national theater decision makers, so artistic directors and literary managers, folks from different theaters from across the U.S. And then the playwrights, if they are not local, do they come in to work on their plays like the, during a development process? Yeah, so this is... Uh, the last two years, we've been able to bring the playwrights into the room for development. We are committed to paying our artists, and so we want to financially support them. And as the festival, from its initial very, very small beginnings into where it is now, we've been able to expand out our budget, expand out the generous support that we get from our donors and patrons to be able to sustain bringing our artists to San Diego. So we fly in our playwrights. So this would be last year. We flew on our playwrights. This year, it's a different situation because we're in COVID. But we bring in playwrights, dramaturgs, and sometimes directors. Sometimes we can pull local directors and sometimes we pull out-of-town directors. Generally, all of our actors are from the Southern California region. This year is wholly unprecedented, all new territory for us. We're not flying anybody in, but we are connecting across the U.S., so we have four different readings, and every reading is in at least three time zones. One of the readings, the one I'm directing, I have an artist who's in Connecticut, somebody in New York, someone in Texas, someone in L.A., someone in Portland, someone in San Diego, a few people in San Diego. So we have the ability to connect with a really wide network of artists and really incorporate some talented performers from across the U.S. into these readings. I would love to hear more about that 
transition into producing on Zoom versus, you know, that in-person experience, right? When we started COVID, we knew we were going up in September. So we go on Labor Day. That's like our weekend each year. When we started going into quarantine, we said, there's no way it's going to affect September. We're good to go. We're going to still plan for in-person. You know, there may be some more precautions we take when we're in person, but we're going to be in person. And then that became, let's hold two different models in our head. Maybe there's an online model, but really we're not going to think about that. Let's think about how we like be safe when we're in person. We held on as long as we possibly could. And I think we made the ultimate decision until the end of June to like move into the online planning until July 1st. That was my like, please world workout for me. So July 1st, we were like, okay, we're going to be totally online. So then we hustled. We used a lot of the same structure and framework that we have for our in-person festival and then hustled the ideas on how to make this work for an online platform. It really has had a number of unforeseeable challenges, but also a number of really cool benefits to it. The challenges we are currently, so right now as we speak, um, we have a group teching on our website. And so the first challenge was like, how are we going to get these stories to our audiences? Do we want to have Zooms? Can we build our own website on our end? Do we want to have a million links? Do we want to have one platform? We decided to go with one platform. And then we wanted to have the highest video quality that we could for our audiences, the highest audio quality. So we decided to forego Zoom and use a separate streaming platform. And so we are streaming through StreamYard and filtering that out to hop in a unique website. So it'll be a conference website, one website for everything. All the events are on that website, all the files. So we're making our scripts available. We're making a PDF program available. We're making the surround materials that you would get in a printed form available to you on the website so that it doesn't get lost. It doesn't like disappear. And so that like process of figuring out like how to stream things and platforms versus websites, all terminology that's new to me within the last couple of months. So that has been a challenge in the process of like figuring out how to make that happen. But the benefits of connectivity have been awesome. So we're going to have a designer panel. Typically, our designer panel is just a showcase uh, to promote local BIPOC identified designers. So this is expanding beyond our Latinx community and really looking at our Black, Indigenous, and people of colors communities as a way to help promote their presence in the theater, specifically designers, because those are fields that tend to be monolithic in their like ethnic and cultural identifications. Usually in person, we get six to 10 designers who are able to come out and be with us in person. This year, because we're going national, we have the ability to include designers from across the U.S. And so we have 40-something designers who will be participating. So it quadrupled the amount of people that were able to have present in the space with us. That's incredible. Cool. So the website to reserve your festival pass is sdrep.org. And we will include that in the show notes for this episode. So if you miss it, we'll, we'll put it up there. So I had noticed that you have a law degree. Like another world, but yeah, yeah, there's that. How, how do those connect theater and law? That is the million dollar question that when I made the choice to jump uh, field, my parents, <laughs> uh, it was their very first question. So for me, they both begin at the same seed. 
theater and the law begin and actually like in the same physical space. So if we go back thousands of years to the ancient Greek, the law and theatrical performance began from the same impulse, the same impulse to convene and celebrate and tell stories together. One went in one direction towards the amphitheater and the other went in the other direction towards the courtroom. But they both began in the same physical meeting space. So for me, the thing that I liked about law was the ability to tell stories, was the ability to make sense of our world based on the way that we were framing it. My brother was in a massive car accident when I was a teenager. He sustained a traumatic brain injury and was very injured because of it. And I saw what happened to him and sort of the the lack of power that my family had in that situation. We didn't know any lawyers. This entire world was new to us. We just felt really disempowered. And I said, "That's I don't want families to go through that. I want to be the change I want to see in the world. So I said, I'm going to be a lawyer. Didn't know what that meant in any way other than like what you see on Law & Order. I was like, yeah, sure. Bum, bum. That sounds kind of cool. I'll do that. So I went through the law school track through undergrad and got into a law school, did really well once I got there. Um, but I kind of knew something was wrong. It was about like the first day of orientation. I was like, oh, this is, it doesn't really suit my personality. It was kind of a, you know, a little bit of a fear on the first day. And it really, over time, became apparent to me that I like the idealism of the law. I don't like the practical practice of the law. Transactional law just really isn't for me. And courtroom law is the the stakes are so heavy that I don't know that I could live with that on the daily. I take things very personally when it comes to like my commitment to the projects I take on. And if a client of mine, if the outcome didn't go in the way that I wanted, I know I would be personally devastated. So I said, oh, what do I do? <laughs> I need to move at some point. Got super scared for a little bit and then thought back to what are the things that I value? And I value stories and I value presence for people without means and without power. I said, how can I make that happen in a way that suits the skills that I've been endowed with? I was a little bit terrified, but said that I you know, realized that I love theater. I like going to see plays. I like watching plays. At that point, I would find any opportunity to get into theater for free. I reviewed plays for a local newspaper because they gave me free tickets. Um, I realized, okay, there's something there. And I just jumped in. I didn't do it in undergrad. I like, did high school theater when I was a child. I was a terrible actor, so I knew it wasn't something I could pursue. It was the worst stage fight. I'm not a good performer. But then when... When I was at that point, at that decision point, I just jumped into a PhD. I know that I'm good at school and intellectually, like I thrive in a university or an academic setting. And so I just jumped into a PhD, both feet, left the law behind. I finished law school. I was already very far in debt. I wasn't going to like just not finish. So I finished law school and then um, went straight into a PhD program at UC Irvine and have not looked back since. It really was the best decision. It As soon as I got there, the stress was gone. It just felt joyful and collaborative. And it kind of like clicked in a way, like a little knot in my stomach went away and just hasn't returned. So I was like, okay, this feels like the right choice. That's amazing. What a progression. I know a lot of creative people that went to law school 
strangely enough. I guess Law & Order does a really good job of selling <laughs> that story, right? But I think it's really interesting, Patrice, because I've been thinking about, you know, what, what's going on in the world and like, how can we make meaningful change? And do we work with the law? But I, I feel like it boils down to storytelling. Like storytelling is really what drives change. Like stories change the world or have the capacity to change the world. So I think fascinating that you mentioned that. Yeah, it's kind of a wonky example, but in law school, it was one of the things that got me through law school. But I wrote this paper about the presence and popularity of Uncle Tom's Cabin. And so in the U.S. during the like the progression towards the Civil War, the, the North wasn't ardently abolitionist. There were some very strong abolitionist communities, but it wasn't generally opposed to slavery. The popularity of Uncle Tom's Cabin was one of the, like, identifiably one of the triggers that helped to sway the North against slavery. Telling a story of oppression using, and there are problems with Uncle Tom's Cabin, I am not the first to say that, but being able to humanize a person through a story is the thing that made us as a nation recognize the absolute monstrosity of this institution. And without storytelling, and because and Uncle Tom's Cabin was like the thing that I gravitated towards because it's a theatrical telling. Its widespread popularity first began in a, a serialized novel printed in a like a little journal. Yeah, and so it was printed serial, serially over a series of months and then collected into the novel that you may see uh, contemporarily. I don't recommend it. It's kind of unwieldy and super racist, but uh, it was also condensed into a play. And that play came about right before it was one of the things that helped inspire copyright law. So it existed that translate, you know, adaptation, there were no copyrights this time. So it was widespread and it performed everywhere. Its proliferation in its day was, I think I read somewhere that there were more prints or like more people had absorbed Uncle Tom's Cabin than the Bible in its day. It's considered the first bestseller in this country. And Abraham Lincoln apparently told Harriet Beecher Stowe, you're the reason for, you're the book you wrote is the reason for the Civil War. So, yeah. It it really did sway people's opinions. And it wasn't just her book because there there wasn't a predominance of the country that was literate at that time, but it was theatrical performances that brought it into communities widespread. And it was, you know a little flashy, use some of the tools we have within theater to help sell audiences. At its heart, it connected several protagonists and their humanity and allowed us as audiences to see the humanity of these characters. And once you see a person's humanity, you cannot objectify them anymore. You cannot see them as an other once you've identified them as an us. Oh my gosh, yes. (laughs) I just love listening to you speak. (laughs) <laughs> everything, everything, no, really, everything that you're talking about, I just keep shaking my head. Like you said in the beginning, law is theatrical. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Most definitely. Meant, law is meant to be performed. Mm-hmm. The goal of law is to sway your community. So you need, and from its inception, like the community had a presence in the jury, like in the jury selection, or in the jury presence. And so you need to tell a story that is going to convince others of something. So you do need to be aware that others are watching. So, so Patrice, I know you as a director and as a producer and a dramaturg. 
But something that I did not know is that you were also a playwright. I don't know how I didn't know this, but I, and I found out when I was looking at my email and saw this, this blast from New Village Arts about a play that will be happening. So tell us about your work as a playwright. Oh yeah, that's so funny. Yeah, I forget about that hat sometimes. <laughs> um, so during quarantine, I was bored, as many people were, I'm sure. And I'm super close with my family. I've got three little nephews, and they are adorable. They're the best little nephews ever. And we hadn't seen them in a number of months. And our family's very close, so I had gone from seeing them at least once or twice every week to not seeing them for months. And I felt hollow. I was missing them so terribly, like a physical pain of missing these boys. And Moxie theater was doing their um, streaming series they had just started their streaming series and a friend mentioned that you know they're they're doing this series and they might be thinking of scripts and I said oh my goodness I have an idea and it just formed and popped into my head of a grandmother connecting with her grandson so seeing my mother wanting to be with her grandchildren but not being able to because she's high risk and they're little and kids can carry germs and not realize and this was at the beginning of quarantine where we didn't really know um, the risk factors and so set about to writing this little play for moxie and submitted it to them moxie liked it they picked it up and so we produced it in their zoom fest and then new village arts i sent it over to them afterwards and they reached out Uh, they liked the story and we're going to expand it out So right now, while we're prepping for the festival, I haven't been able to um, look back and touch the script, but we are going to expand it. So right now it's about 20, 25 minutes, and my goal is to make it 45. That'll happen next week at some point when I get to return to writing. That is awesome. And so so is this the first play you've written, or is this the first play you've written in a long time? Or like, how did the playwriting bug get you? Or is it just because we're in quarantine? Like I, I think I wrote, I wrote one other one. It's funny. Like I'm like, oh yeah, sure, I can totally do that. I'm like, wow, never done it before. I can do that. That's my like sense of bravado. Is like, <laughs> that's how we feel. Anybody can do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure, I can totally do that. So I wrote one for amigos, um, for their Dia de los Muertos, like Halloween's like celebration thing that we do, Historias Tenebrosas, and I wrote that like a few years ago, mm-hmm. and then I was like, oh yeah, I can do this. this is like you know, it's, it's storytelling. It's just storytelling through multiple people. And so this is like number two. And so do you think that you'll write more? Have you gotten the playwriting bug and, and well, keep yeah. doing this or? Well, <laughs> I was like, there's a necessity to it right now because we've moved on to Zoom. So we're doing the one Nana's Theater Spectacular, which is the grandmother performing for her grandson. Um, it's like a puppet show over Zoom. And uh, I also teach at CSU San Marcos, and I was slated to direct this fall. So I was going to do an in-person immersive experience, and that I was going to write, but it was very simple because it's nonverbal, so I was just going to create scenarios. But since we cannot be in person, we are switching gears, and we're going to be creating a new play. So I'm writing that one as well as we speak. My plate is a little bit full right now. And that one, I'm very excited about. I just wish I had more time in the day to be able to work towards it. That one is going to be a 
again, piece created for online performances. And in it, five historical women are using contemporary forms of mediated communication. It's a fun idea, and we're still in the process of writing it. Um, but it's exciting. I pick pieces that are like uh, typically have a big, strong heart at the center of them and typically are something within my wheelhouse that I already am familiar with. Very, that sounds very really cool. fun. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so is there a, a playwright that you would love to w- work with that you haven't had the opportunity to work with yet? Like a bucket mm-hmm. list playwright? <laughs> oh, that list is so long. There's so many mm-hmm. little playwrights. Because I'm like, I want to direct your pieces and I really just want to be in a room with you and hang out and see how you think and how you talk about stuff. Um, I love the work of Octavio Solis. His plays are poetic and poetry is not my jam. That is not my thing. I do not like poetry, but his framing of poetry is evocative and also located within a very specific community. It doesn't feel gratuitous. It feels very grounded in the identity of the community. I love his work. Um, but it's also like really like brutal at the same time. So it's beautiful, but there he is not afraid to t- make his characters look ugly, not gratuitously violent or gratuitously ugly, but intentionally violent and ugly. Luis Alfaro's is just joyful and fun and like so well crafted. His pieces are just, oh, I love his work. And then Alexis Shear, her voice is snappy and funny and witty. I, I love the wit of her pieces. It's also very, very present and very, very today. She comes from a place of like uh, really strong, youthful energy. So we have a segment on our podcast called Asking for a Friend. Our show is big on, on giving people the tools to get to work. So finish listening to this and then get to work. And this might not seem like it has anything to do with playwriting, but it does because everything is part of the story. So go ahead, Tori, take it away. What What is your question? Asking for a friend. Do you use expired medication? Do I use expired medication? Yeah, totally all the time. I'm very cheap. Does that, does that translate then to like expired canned food? And what, like, when do you say no? <laughs> Where do you draw the line? When you eat it and it tastes bad? I had a I had a friend uh, tell me when it came to expired medication and she was an ER nurse. She said, you're okay to use expired medication, you know, as long as it's not something that was supposed to be refrigerated or whatever. She said, sometimes they might just lose their potency over time, but that it's perfectly okay. It's not like it's going to turn poisonous. I still Google stuff though, just to make sure. And yeah, and then they can't tell my husband. Sometimes I have to, oh, he's going to listen to this. <laughs> I, a, a doctor told me two years. Two years. Yeah. Two years. But I will say that I have probably used two-year-old mayonnaise, like expired mayonnaise, which is is probably not. I'm sure ma- mayonnaise is like one of those things that you should throw away probably, but I haven't, and I didn't get sick, and it, was, and it tasted fine. I was thinking of my grandma who kept everything and reused her cans and all of that you know she grew up yeah in the depression like you (laughs) you can learn a lot about how to repurpose stuff that way too Mm -hmm. you're very low income and 
if we had bought it, we were going to use it. And if the expiration date passed and you could still eat it, you were going to eat it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I like that philosophy. <laughs> All right. Final thing. Patrice, do you have a writing yes. prompt for us? I'm going to think of one on the spot and pretend like I didn't have one. That's what we one. do. That's exactly um, what we that's do. What we, that's, that's what Mabel and I do. Okay. I have been stressed out lately and I've been working on a puzzle to help like de-stress. So maybe something about puzzles. Create a story in which your protagonist is working on a puzzle. You get to decide how big this puzzle is and how complex it is. And there's one piece missing. Okay, go from there. That is beautiful. We will put this on the show notes. We'll see what people come back with, but I already feel a connection because the last time I did a puzzle, this is exactly what happened to me. One piece, a thousand piece puzzle, and it was it, 999 piece puzzle, I should say, because I lost the one piece. So that's, that's great. Patrice, that's awesome. Yeah. All right, Patrice, we know you're super busy as you're getting ready for the big weekend. It starts on Friday goes through Sunday, get your tickets at sdrep.org. And again, we'll have that information on the website. And uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. We'll also put your website up as well so that if um, anyone wants to check out your other work, see, they can they can go to your personal website too. Very cool. That sounds great. Cool. All right, yeah. Patrice, thank you so much. That was an amazing conversation with Patrice. And please do check out the festival this weekend. We will have the link for the Latinx New Play Festival on our website, as well as Patrice's personal website, if you wanna check out her work. And this is an open call for questions, for our asking for a friend segment. They don't need to relate to playwriting or theater. It can be completely random, bizarre, something that you might not feel comfortable asking yourself. You know, send those questions to us and we will ask them for you. And you know why we do that, Tori? Why do we do that? Because it's a great way to come up with ideas. Nuance, right? Well, you know, Patrice answered that question really quickly about expired medication. But what was interesting was that it did open up this discussion about, depending on the household you grew up in, you ate things. Now, for that reason, though, Ron, I think, you know, he grew up in a really poor household. You know, the mom would make a huge pot of something. You ate that all week. So he doesn't want to eat things that are expired or doesn't want to eat leftovers. It, it can be a challenge. I, I don't really have a problem with leftovers. I'm seasonal. Like sometimes I'll be like, yeah, I'm all about the leftovers. And then other times I'll be like, I do not, I do not want to look at those leftovers at all. A seasonal leftover. <laughs> that, that should be the title of a play. Seasonal leftovers. So with that, we leave you with a prompt, this wonderful puzzle prompt. And again, we'll put that on the show notes on the website. It's heyplaywright.com. Go watch some virtual theater out there. Check out the Latinx New Play Festival if you can. There's a lot of other great shows happening this weekend. Just find them. They're out there. Bye. Go write something. Yeah, like your mother told you. Go do something productive. <laughs>